Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I want to welcome everyone to this evening's very special program, remembering and honoring Ezra Vogel, someone we all loved dearly and respected immensely. Ezra wouldn't wanted us to be sad tonight. So instead we want to celebrate and to learn from the extraordinary life that he led. Going from helping out as a shoe salesman in his immigrant parents' clothing store in the small town of Delaware, Ohio, to the corridors of Harvard University and Washington, DC, to enjoying the friendship and having the ear of senior government officials and policymakers in three different countries. To help us do that, we have brought together four people each representing different periods and or facets of Ezra's professional life. And we've asked them to talk about, to talk about him for about 10 minutes or so apiece, about the Ezra that they knew, sharing an anecdote or two, but mostly focusing on the impact Ezra had on them, on their field and on their communities. Uh, and let me say that for each of the four speakers, I'm not going to do a whole, they could spend a lot of time talking about each of them, but you had access to them, to their bios in the invitation we sent. And if you didn't take advantage of that, you can do it later on our website, you can look at it. So I'm just going to identify them very briefly and say that we're going to go in sort of a chronological order this evening. It's a the chronology makes sense to us. Hopefully it will to others as well. Um, but we're going to start with Melinda Liu, Newsweek Magazine's longtime Beijing bureau chief who, re who, has reported for, uh, who has reported about China for most of her career. But Melinda started out, uh, as many of us did, as students of Ezra. Uh, she was an undergraduate student of Ezra's and then later in life became a close friend. She represents two facets of Ezra that we'd like to highlight tonight, one of which is his commitment to his undergraduate students. And the other is his very strong and lifelong drive to ensure that the knowledge that was produced within academia be extended beyond the ivory tower and transmitted to the public. So I'm going to turn it over to Melinda and her friend, Deng Xiaoping. <laughs> um, not quite a friend, more like a, a presence, I would say. <laughs> thank you, Jan. Uh, and thank you all so much. I'm, I'm totally humbled and honored to be here. Um, Ezra was a towering, unique, humanizing force in the world, and especially in my world. I'm, I'm very humbled and, and actually a little bit overwhelmed um, to be here today. Uh, with so many illustrious figures. Uh, in, so in tribute to Ezra's book on Dung, I pulled out this painting in back of me um, and put it in the dining room. Uh, it had languished in my garage for about 10 years. And 
I think this could well be the first time Deng Xiaoping has ever been illuminated by a ring light for a Zoom talk. Um, it was partly due to Ezra's work on the book that I uh, was so lucky to be able to spend time with him in more recent years. He was interviewing sources in Beijing for the book, and I just happened to be living and working here as a journalist. He stayed at my apartment for a number of times, and in those days, um, we, we spent many meals together where he would pull out these carefully handwritten notes from his interviews with all kinds of amazing senior people and, and would discuss them. And, and during that period, uh, Deng Xiaoping's painting was also in the Newsweek office, and I think he enjoyed seeing it there. Um, that was an accident of geography and timing um, in some ways. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to say how amazed and honored I was that he would take the time to ask my perceptions of events and people. I mean, I was just a journalist and he was Ezra Vogel, but that was Ezra. He treasured friendships and relationships. In some ways, he was sort of a ninja of Guanxi, in a totally good way, I mean, carefully nurturing acquaintances and uh, whether they be high or low in terms of status, prestige, titles. Um, and and he, he reached out to ordinary folks. And in today's company, I definitely fall into the latter category. He was my undergraduate thesis advisor at Harvard. We spent time together in uh, 1972 and 73 when I was working on my thesis. Uh, a few hours ago, Jan was asking me, how did, how did I meet Ezra? How, what classes of his had I taken? And I am totally chagrined and embarrassed to confess, I don't actually remember the first time I met him and I, I, I can't even confirm that I took a class of his. Those were heady, disruptive days at, at Harvard. 1969 was my first year there, protests all over. So it was a bit of a blur. But the thing I do know above all is that I desperately wanted Ezra Vogel to be my thesis, thesis advisor and who wouldn't? He was, he had energy, he had reputation, he spoke Asian languages, he interviewed Cantonese refugees in Hong Kong. Um, I was hoping to major in both social relations, which was his original discipline, um, and visual studies. And I planned to submit my thesis in the form of a documentary film and of course, you know, a lot of traditional professors would have just run away screaming from that sort of an idea. The big mystery in my mind still today is why did Ezra agree to advise me? I spoke no Asian language as well. I barely traveled at all. Worse, I'd grown up in a sort of state of alienation and deracination in Dayton, Ohio, of all places. I mean, my parents had to drive hours just to find other Chinese friends who can make up a table of mahjong, which they then would play for the entire weekend nonstop. I mean, so that's how separated I was from Asia. But here's where Ezra was brilliant and, and, and so, so special. He always took an all of society approach to life and also to his career. His roots were in sociology and ethnography. Um, he had optimism, enthusiasm. He had a deep respect for original research. These are all things he's famous for. And it also meant that he wanted to know everything about 
about a society and about people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, in the beginning, I also had a sneaking suspicion that, that he kind of felt sorry for me. Um, we had both grown up in Ohio. Maybe he saw in me a fellow Buckeye deposited in the middle of big bad Boston. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, a Buckeye is a nickname for someone from Ohio. It's a kind of a low key, low profile fruit, but it's hard it, and it's a tough nut to crack. And I want to add a, a, a mention here about Charlotte. This merry band of Buckeyes also included Charlotte very much. Um, she had been at Case Western Reserve and we would spend hours talking about healthcare for elderly Chinese. Um, and they would be able to speak it in Cantonese too. Anyway, my thesis project focused on second generation Chinese in Boston Chinatown. So you can see how that's a weird fit. To his credit, Ezra sat through endless viewings of my film, the rough cuts, the outtakes, now all lost in the midst of time. His patience was mind boggling and he always gave me very good practical advice. And I, I didn't even speak Cantonese and you know he could under, understand Cantonese when it appeared in my film, it was crazy. Um, after graduation, I started to travel. Uh, he inspired me to, you know, to go to Asia. I first had uh, a Michael Rockefeller Memorial Traveling Fellowship, which brought me to Asia in 1973. And pretty much here I've stayed, except for a short stint in Washington, for much of the time ever since. And Ezra stayed my friend ever since as well. He enjoyed being with journalists. He respected the media's need to dig deep and dig hard, sometimes under great pressure and urgent time uh, discipline um, in order to get information. So altogether now, uh, probably largely because of Ezra's influence, I've wound up spending nearly 40 years living and reporting in greater China in Taipei and Hong Kong and in Beijing. I've, now, I've lived in Beijing, lived and worked in Beijing for a quarter of a century. And very often when Ezra visited, he would, uh, I would offer and he would take it up very eagerly um, to set up a dinner with him with foreign correspondents. Um, at one point I was the president of the foreign correspondent um, club in China, in China here in Beijing. And uh, you know, people would come together. And he was always uh, in listening mode. He, 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 you know, he would always want to hear what other people had to say first. And he was just delightful. Uh, one of the most memorable meetings and, and possibly one of the more recent ones um, I organized was actually a small one in Beijing a few years back. It was a lunch for him, uh, plus a very plugged in diplomat, Charlie Parton, who's a senior Brit diplomat who was then seconded to the EU delegation in, in Beijing. And one of Beijing's most respected foreign correspondents, Chris Buckley of the New York Times. And again, he was just full of questions and um, he was so modest. He, he wanted to hear what everybody had to say first. And it was very impressive. Um, he was equally eager to engage with Japanese and Chinese journalists. During his visits to Beijing, he was always being interviewed in Chinese by local media. And just this past Christmas, after his death, actually, I just happened to be watching a, a Chinese language program on television um, on Phoenix TV, which uh, uh, a show called Dialogue, which featured interviews with foreign VIPs. 
and I, I, I was in a hotel doing something, suddenly I heard a familiar voice and I ran out and it was Ezra on Phoenix TV talking, holding forth with the anchor for more than an hour in very fast paced Mandarin. And it was so impressive. And I, I, you know, I can't even remember him mentioning this, but apparently it was like a multi-part series on Ezra actually on Phoenix TV. And of course he had many friends in the Japanese media as well. Um, last June, I had the great honor of being able to recruit him to talk about his last book on China and Japan to the Royal Asiatic Society of Beijing, which was founded by my husband. Um, Ezra was articulate, thoughtful, at the top of his game, again, totally modest. And he talked about the challenges of writing about the, these two Asian countries which had been at each other's throats for such a long time, which made it precisely the reason why it was crucial for China and Japan to talk, to understand, to engage, and to reconcile. It was a hugely um, successful talk. I was so honored to have been able to do that. And I think it was one of his last uh, big speaking engagements um, on that kind of a scale. And afterwards, we had long talks on the phone. He was really pleased with the way the talk had went. And, and he, you know, he just had so much time for this sort of thing. He, he said the appreciative audience had brought out the best in me. And he also wanted to make sure that, that Chinese acquaintances in Beijing had got a copy of the recorded talk, since some of them uh, might not have had access to, to Zoom. He was hugely modest. Ezra, when meeting someone, he was always the first to praise the other's contributions and achievements. Um, he was deeply committed to family and friends. He treated each relationship as a total treasure, like a, a little jewel that had to be protected and, and nurtured. Um, a few years back, I happened to be in Boston at the same time as Perry Link, uh, an, another well-known protege of uh, Ezra's. Um, Ezra and Charlotte had invited us to breakfast at their home. And when we arrived, there was Ezra preparing to do us the great honor of making pancakes for breakfast. But not just any ordinary slapdash pancakes. These were lavished with the same care, the same discipline, the same uh, attention to detail that he had shown throughout his professional career. And Perry and I were blown away. We still talk about it now, actually, right, Perry? Um, Charlotte and the rest of us had been yakking for a while. I wandered over to the stove to observe Ezra's handiwork. I'd never seen this particular side of Ezra. And, and he apologized for having to kind of focus on what was going on in the stove. He said, I've got, to I've got to take care to get this shape just right. And he made the most beautiful, most golden, most delicious pancakes ever. And they were perfectly round and perfectly symmetrical. As with so much in life, Ezra got it just right. And I'm so honored that you had me speak about him. Thank you very much. Thank you, Melinda. Um, next, we're going to turn to Tom Gold, professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Tom was one of Ezra's first PhD students or in an early cohort of PhD students. And we've asked him to talk about Ezra as a, as a professor and as a mentor. 
um, and also about his contribution to the field of sociology, or actually Ezra's encouragement of his students and colleagues to transcend the boundaries of sociology in order to make it a richer, more complex and more personal field, sort of the way Melinda was talking about Ezra wanting to know each and everything about everyone. Um, that's, I had a brief discussion with Tom yesterday about that aspect of Ezra. So we're hoping he'll touch on that as well. Okay, Tom, it's all yours. Great, well, thanks, uh, Jan. I'm very honored also to have been invited to participate in this panel. I can't say that I'm happy that it, this is the occasion that we're doing this, but I'm certainly honored. My relationship with Ezra began soon after my arrival at Harvard in the Regional Studies East Asia Master's Program in the fall of 1973. Milton Yinger, a sociology professor at Oberlin, where I had just spent a year after two years teaching in Taiwan as an Oberlin Shanxi Memorial Association representative. Uh, Yinger taught a course I took on racial and ethnic minorities in Asia and Africa. And he told uh, Ezra to check me out when I went to Harvard. Before Oberlin, uh, Yinger had taught at Ohio Wesleyan University in Ezra's hometown of Delaware, Ohio. And I forget how, he had known Ezra as a high schooler and recruited him to Ohio Wesleyan. They maintained a close relationship, though Ezra stayed at Ohio Wesleyan. Maybe the fact that we were two Jewish boys from Ohio, and Melinda, I didn't realize you were also a Buckeye, though probably not a Jewish Buckeye, uh, had something to do with it. And actually in uh, his inscription for his, the copy that he sent me of uh, One Step Ahead in China, Guangdong Under Reform, he wrote to Tom Gold, one of the best of our China watchers from a fellow Jewish Ohioan Harvard sociologist. And it was interesting that other than that, that uh, and the fact that he re uh, occasionally referred to me as a mensch were the, about the extent of his Jewish identity, um, which was uh, surprising for someone whose middle name was Feivel. But that's, that's another story, I won't go into that. Uh, when I went to Harvard in 1973, Ezra had just returned from his first trip to China and he was extremely excited about talking about China and teaching about China. And he immediately invited me to join a study group of sociology PhD students working on Asia, mostly China. That was the first of many turning points in my life that he engineered. The core of the group comprised in alphabetical order, Debbie Davis, whom I had met in Taiwan, we were both teaching at Donghai University and was at that time at BU. Dick Madsen, Bob Snow, and Mary Corky White. We met pretty much weekly over lunch. The first year we read Chinese stories in English for what they revealed about Chinese society, a fundamental China-watching China skill. The second year we interviewed overseas Chinese who had gone back to visit family. It must have been around 1977 that Ezra asked the group if we would give him feedback on a manuscript he was working on about Japan. We read it and said it was so uncritical about Japan that no one would believe it and that he shouldn't publish it. Of course, this became Japan as number one, a book that catapulted him into a different level of fame and fortune. In the spring of 1974, Ezra asked if I was interested in going into a PhD program in sociology. I had intended to go for the History and East Asian Languages program. Other than Yinger's upper division seminar, I had never taken a social class. I told Ezra that whenever I considered taking one, and you'll excuse my language, my friends had said, quote, sociology is bullshit. It's just fancy words for things that everybody knows don't waste your time, unquote. And I was too intimidated to sign up for a class. With patience and sagacity, Ezra deferred to my opinion. 
he added that he thought my personality was more suited to sociology and that I would pick it up quickly. The second year I had some unpleasant experiences with unnamed history faculty and realized that I really liked and preferred the social students as people and intellectuals. And how lucky was I to have Vogel recruit me? So I asked if the offer was still open. He readily agreed and through some magic, I didn't have to retake the GRE and su successfully applied to the social program. The spring of 1974 saw another Vogel engineering feat. He called me in the dorm one night and said, your Chinese is pretty good, isn't it? And I said, well, not bad. And you studied martial arts, didn't you? He said, well, yeah, but and he said, how would you like to work as an interpreter for a Chinese Wushu delegation coming to the United States this summer? My knees buckled. I had been in Taiwan when the ping pong and acrobat groups had been in the US, so missed any chance to work with them though my Chinese was in any, in any case nowhere nearly as good as those of the people they got. So I had a second chance to work with real Chinese. This began my long relationship with the National Committee on US-China Relations and of course, Jen Barris uh, that hosted Wushu. What's more, he also managed to get me a job with the Committee on Scholarly Communication with the PRC that summer, helping to plan an escorted, uh, escorted trip for Chinese agronomists that summer. And that uh, began my relationship working with Mary Bullock, uh, who was a junior uh, staff person at the CSC PRC that, that, that time. When it came time to develop my dissertation prospectus, I had planned to do something on the sociology of exchanges with China. But that coincided with a downturn in US-China relations. And Ezra said, you're interested in development and dependency theory and all the literatures about Latin America, nothing on Asia. You know Taiwan well, have lots of friends, why don't you do your dissertation on Taiwan? So I did, which proved to be another turning point, another example of his sort of knowing what was best for me. I returned to Harvard in 1978, planning to write the dissertation and teach both in sociology and East Asian studies. Then the chance to apply for the first group of students to study in China came up. I told Ezra I was too old at 30 to get it, but he said, no, they were looking for older, more mature students. So I would be a strong candidate. I was indeed selected and put everything else aside to spend a year in Shanghai at Fudan University, starting in February of 79. That year coincided with a remarkable opening and transformation of the country. <clears throat> in December of 1979, Ezra and Charlotte, newly married, escorted a Pan Am tour group to China. I invited them to a New Year's Eve party at the home of Chinese friends. It was an unforgettably warm and riotous evening. There was one example of not quite accurate advice that he gave me. In January of 1981, I was escorting a group from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, starting with a conference in Williamsburg. At the conference, Mike Oxenberg asked me if I was applying for, quote, the Berkeley job. I had no idea about that and asked Ezra, who was also there. He said that Berkeley Sociology was recruiting a junior position for someone to do China, that they wanted someone more senior and I was just writing my dissertation. The group actually went to Berkeley uh, on, that, on that tour. And when they were having shoshi after lunch, I went to the department and asked the administrative assistant about the job. She urged me to apply. I reported back to Ezra, who of course supported the application, even if he thought I was underqualified. The rest is history. Uh, and I spent my whole career there. I won't go on about my personal relationship, but wanna highlight some aspects of Ezra that have shaped my professional thinking and practice, though certainly at a much lower level than that of my mentor. First was his joy of engaging with students. 
is informality and lack of pretension, which Melinda also discussed, were striking. Though I needed a push from his loyal assistant, Anna Lara, to call him Ezra. Our lunch group was both personally and intellectually stimulating. It evolved into a foodie group. Corky White was doing a sideline gig as a chef, and we began to hold more and more elaborate Chinese New Year's banquets with everyone chipping in their favorite dish. And actually, we're having our Chinese banquet tomorrow night for Chinese New Year's remotely, uh, inspired by uh, our uh, initial get together after, Ez after Ezra's passing. Ezra held a graduate student in the attic of his house, and with a giant jar of instant coffee nearby, would sit on the floor as he ran the class. He also committed to building a community of his students. I was very lucky to be in Cambridge with this very special group, and we remained close well over four decades later. Related to this was his generous support of all kinds, in particular sharing his guanxi with people who would be useful in research and career development. Second was his joy of engaging more broadly with a wide range of people and opinions, and I think that's gonna be one of the themes this evening. I guess he was suited for a job in intelligence as he truly valued listening to diverse opinions from different points of view. Our China group with his Japan students organized a celebration of his 70th birthday and retirement with an event that drew people from all walks of life, a testament to the breadth of his influence. Third would be his insistence on deep immersion in all aspects of the society one studied. Above all else was language, his ability to juggle Japanese and Chinese and continue to be tutored in both, both up to the end was astounding. He gave academic lectures in both languages. Mastery of language was an important step towards fieldwork, and he insisted that his students do intensive fieldwork in the societies we studied. Fourth, related to that, was his reminder that we're dealing with real people and should meet them in their own culture. I organized a panel in his honor at an AAS annual meeting, probably around 2000, when he turned 70, that I called, Don't Forget That There Are People Out There. I saw it as a reminder that while we're collecting data through interviews and participant observation, never to forget that these are real people and not just a more robust N. And Ezra always insisted that you can learn something from everybody that you speak to and that it was very valuable to continue engaging in conversations. He was also frankly discouraged that so much of current research on China by grad students was based on formulating and testing models rather than a deep dive into unraveling a puzzle or asking profound questions. As far as his uh, impact on, on the discipline of sociology, I found he really was not very much interested in theory or contributing to sociology as a discipline, which is sort of ironic considering his advisor, his graduate advisor was Talcott Parsons, who was in many ways the father of American sociology and global sociology. Um, and he applied Parsons in his initial work and in his Japan's new middle class and Canton under communism were both very, very Parsonian. Fifth was his work ethic. I can't imagine how he managed to write so much on so many topics while also keeping up a grinding schedule of talks, seminars, and travel. When I stayed at his house in March of 2019, in Melinda, he made me scrambled eggs. I had a choice between pancakes or scrambled eggs. <laughs> he said he'd worked as a short order cook and he, he knew how to make scrambled eggs and they were, they were excellent. So after breakfast, he excused himself and said he had to go finish going over the edits for his China Japan book. He'd already told me of his several future projects. Six would be his concern with the future. This meant not only the societies he studied and their interactions, such as his book on China Japan, but also the training and cultivation of the next generation of area specialists. 
his enthusiastic engagement with the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program was proof of that. One reason he retired at the tender age of 70, he said, was to make way for the next generation and not block its advancement. Only a few weeks before his death, he sent, me many, he sent many of us drafts of a paper he was writing with Graham Allison, who we'll hear from later, for the incoming Biden administration with suggestions on relations with China, an issue that concerned him greatly. His work at building institutions to, at Harvard to support Asian studies is another testament to his focus on the future. Finally would be his boundless curiosity. That underlay all the other traits just mentioned. The conversation with him never flagged. He was always looking for new ideas, new information, new questions, and ways of seeing. A nonagenarian with the curiosity of someone a fraction his age. How often do you come across that? And I'll end with that. Thank you, Jan. Um, thank you, Tom and Melinda, too. Both of those were really lovely vignettes and, and snapshots of the Ezra we all knew and, and loved and picked up on so many themes that, that made up the kind of person he was. Um, and I know we're going to hear very similar things or similar kinds of information from our, our next two speakers, the first of which is Graham Allison. Graham is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard. He has taught there for over five decades, and he also received his BA and his PhD from Harvard, but then also is uh, impressively an MA and another, P, another BA from Oxford. So very well prepared uh, is Graham. So having been there for so long, that means that he and Ezra um, were colleagues for more than half a century. So we've asked Graham to talk about what that was like being Ezra's colleague for so long. And you know, we, we wanna hear a little gossip about that part of the, the two of you. Um, but we also want Graham to talk about not just what being a colleague of Ezra's was like, but also um, to talk a little bit about Ezra's commitment to public service. Um, both Graham and Ezra took time out of their academic careers to work in the first Clinton administration, Graham as Assistant Secretary of Defense, and Ezra, as I think Tom mentioned, as a National Intelligence Officer for East Asia. And I love the fact, Tom, that you mentioned that that's uh, Ezra's vast curiosity about people and his ability to talk to anyone, even someone sitting on a street corner that he happened to run into, probably made him a, indeed a very good intelligence officer. Um, so Graham and, and Ezra both took this time off. They then returned to academia, returned to Harvard. And I'm sort of curious too about what that was like, you know, going off, being in the halls of power in Washington and then coming back. Of course, people at Harvard probably thought that their halls of power were more important than the Washington ones. But, you know, what was it like to reintegrate yourselves back into the day-to-day -day sort of diurnal ways that academics live their lives when you had just come from Washington. Um, and both of you, I guess, didn't want to give that up because both of you continued um, Ezra throughout the rest of his life and you as well being consultants and advising the US government and policymakers. So Graham, over to you. Oh, thank you, Jan, and I'm honored to be uh a participant with these others, uh, many of whom knew Ezra in ways that I didn't. 
but I'm glad that I will try to add. Uh, just to pick up on your last point, Ezra often said before he went to Washington and even after that he was fascinated by the question how so many smart people could go to Washington and do so many dumb things. That was one of his uh, frequent uh, uh, sayings. And actually I talked to him about that after we had both come back and I said, how about us? And he said, well, I think I understand that a little bit better you know, than I did at the outset. I think the person that's come through in uh, remarks by Melinda and Tom is the same uh, human being, a remarkable human being who left a deep impression on all of us. So I, I always said about Ezra that he was a gentle gentleman, that he was uh, generous to a fault. Uh, he was relentlessly constructive in every situation. He was indomitably, indomitably optimistic. He was deeply committed to scholarship uh, and uh, following the search for truth wherever, wherever it took him uh, with the evidence and the analysis. And almost uniquely among Harvard uh, icons that I've known, he was genuinely modest, even, even humble. Uh, uh, so uh, a strange mixture, but a strange and wonderful mixture. Uh, at another one of these uh, remembrances, his son, uh, Stephen, uh, sort of after we had gone around for a long time, summed it up and he said, you know, at most of these funerals or whatever people say, rest in peace. And he said, but actually Ezra, uh, uh, not resting, no, no, I don't think so. So I said, I think Ezra was restless for peace, restless in the search for peace. And that's where I intersected with him most and, and knew him best. I first knew him as an author, just reading, and then uh, uh, as a Harvard colleague, but there are a lot of professors at Harvard, and we would interact from time to time. And I mainly got to know him uh, more intensely as a, a collaborator over the past two years uh, after he persuaded me that we should uh, organize a study group of the faculty at Harvard and try to see whether we had anything to contribute to deal with the current deterioration or ongoing deterioration of, uh, of uh, relations between China and the US. And uh, uh, Ezra felt some burden here because as a pillar of Harvard, he actually stood on the shoulders of two giants, uh, John Fairbank and Ed Reischauer. And I think maybe almost uniquely uh, as an individual who mastered both of the languages and took a deep interest in both of the countries in ways that they would approve. But for both of them, the question of whether their knowledge could help illuminate the challenges of national policy and even uh, developments that might make the difference between peace and war uh, were important issues. So uh, I'll uh, 
I'll focus on two, uh, Jan, you said, as public service, two, two episodes or two chapters of that, that I saw. Uh, initially, uh, after Clinton was elected, he came to uh, president in January, in uh, 1993. Uh, Ezra, Joe Nye, my colleague, was uh, appointed the head of the uh, national intelligence officers. And he asked Ezra to be the NIO for East Asia. So what does the NIO do for those of you that don't know? So this person is meant to be the, uh, uh, the thoughtful about the developments and drivers in East Asia. What's happening in Japan? What's happening in Korea? What's happening in China? Uh, what's driving events? What is the trend line? Where is it likely to go? And Ezra's curiosity and his knowledge uh, and his perspective made him an extremely valuable uh, intelligence officer in that respect, just as you said. I, uh, uh, in the Clinton administration, was uh, had lead responsibility for all the nuclear weapons that had been left outside of Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed in December 1991. And I had been writing about loose nukes and the risk that these weapons come loose in the world and the consequences. So I was intensely engaged in trying to see what we could do to round these up. And I was also advocating something that was called a grand bargain, but essentially some version of a Marshall Plan for Russia and the former Soviet states as they made their transitions to market economies and democracies. And there was a G7 summit in June in Tokyo at which the prime minister there was so intent on having a success because that was part of his electoral campaign that he would have done virtually anything we demanded that he do. So I had worked out a study with Fiona Hill who was my associate here at the time and, and some Japanese and some Russian colleagues, the trilateral study in which we thought it was quite feasible for Japan to get back the Northern territories, uh, and two islands to start with and then in, but with a question mark for some substantial payment like $50 billion. That wouldn't be money for Japan. If it was getting back such territory, it would have made a huge difference in the transition in Russia. Uh, Ezra uh, was supposed to analyze what the feasibilities of this were, how to work through it. He was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And if we had followed his, uh, his insights, uh, we would have done it. But actually, uh, this may be another case in which smart people did dumb things. In any case, Clinton finally decided not to push very hard for it, and, uh, and it didn't happen. Uh, then more recently, about, and this is the period in which I uh, have actually became, well, had the great fortune to become a serious uh, collaborator with Ezra. He came to me, I think two years ago and said, uh, I'm distressed about the deterioration of the relationship 
between the US and China. And uh, I think we should try to do something about it. And I said, Ezra, you know, I'm working on this. We have a study group. I do what I can. He said, no, I think maybe, uh, you know, you and I could organize a Harvard group, Harvard-wide across the university, uh, bring the resources and insights from many faculty members, including Michael as a, uh, one of the members, but a dozen others. And uh, I said, well, I'm extremely busy. He said, well, look, let me tell you the truth. He said, uh, I think, uh, he said, when you publish that book, Destined for War, just as Trump became president, I didn't like it. Uh, he's always candid. He said, because I thought it's too pessimistic, okay? But as I watched events the last couple of years, I've concluded uh, uh, the, the structural factors that you point to that would fuel a rivalry, an intense rivalry, are correct, and that left to their own devices, as has happened often in Thucydides and rivalries historically, we could end in a catastrophic war. So we should ask ourselves whether there's anything we could offer about uh, what could be done to prevent that. And uh, one thing led to the other, but in the end, we organized this study. So we worked rather intensely with each other every few days and certainly every week uh, for the last couple of years. We produced a series of reports. Uh, uh, rep he delivered them uh, both to the key people in the Biden transition and also to people who would have been leaders in the Trump transition. So uh, Mac, uh, 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 Matt Sonnenfeld or Jake Sullivan or uh, the others. This was on the basis of a series, sorry, Matt Pottinger, excuse me, uh, who was the deputy national security advisor for Trump and who would have been the lead on China policy in the second Trump term. Uh, uh, we had some interactions on all of these. Eventually these reports will be published, but for now they're, you know, for the use of the administration as best they can, we hope. Uh, and there's certainly been a lot of feedback uh, from them and some follow-up. And I think uh, uh, Tom mentioned one of the one of the pieces, which actually Ezra had refined by circulating it with his uh, former students and colleagues, whom he felt uh, you know could help uh, could help improve it. So basically, not to go into any more detail, but simply to say, the big picture that we came to had three propositions. First, that the structural realities made an intense rivalry between the US and China inevitable. So as long as China was rising and the US was ruling, the uh, relationship would be intensely rivalrous. Two, at the same time, the US and China share a small globe in which they both have major nuclear arsenals that create what we learned to call in the Cold War nuclear mad nuclear mutual assured destruction, so that if we actually had a war, 
we would succeed in killing each other. <laughs> so that was a madness. And secondly, that uh, most people, except for President Trump, appreciated that we have a similar problem because of a, a small contained biosphere in which greenhouse gas emissions by anybody impact everybody. So there's a, a version of climate mutual assured destruction. So that the proposition two. And proposition three was then, and I think Ezra's, this was his formulation, we're condemned to coexist. So because the alternative to that is co-destruction. So if, if that's the picture, then finding inventive ways in which the US and China can simultaneously be both fierce rivals, but also uh, cooperate uh, deeply and intensely, uh, a fascinating question. So finally, uh, one of the uh, topics that came up because one of the issues we did that Ezra chaired was a uh, session of a dozen American uh, China-oriented historians and a dozen Chinese. And we did one of these, uh, these sessions. And one of the topics we explored was the treaty about a thousand years ago in 1005 in the Song Dynasty called the Chanyan Treaty in which the two parties, the Song and the uh, Liao, a Northern tribe agreed to be in effect rivalry partners. Uh, an idea that sounds rather contradictory but actually the peace that followed lasted only 120 years. So we thought that sounded promising. And that's another one of the pieces of this, you know, various uh, elements of the study. But maybe that's enough to simply say that what a fantastic colleague he was. And the last email I got from him was 10 days before, uh, before he left us. And it said, quote, uh, this was an issue where he was taking the lead. He said, quote, I appreciate your willingness to cheer uh, and I will be in touch soon. So I'm waiting for further guidance. Well, I'm sure he is probably giving you further guidance. You just have to figure <clears throat> out how to be attuned enough to, to hear it. Because uh, I'm sure he's really frustrated that he can't be giving us all guidance, especially at a time that we need it so desperately. Uh, our final speaker on the panel, uh, or in this conversation, I prefer to call them conversationalists because we do want to make this an, an interactive conversation, um, is Michael Zoni, the Frank Wensheng Wu Memorial Professor of Chinese History and the director of the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard. The latter being a position that Ezra himself held for six years in the early to mid 1970s, having succeeded John King Fairbank himself. Michael is also a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectual Program and someone who Ezra, who was on our advisory committee, felt very strongly. He was supposed to be, you know, come to the um, decisions about who is going to be a PIP fellow, very impartial and fair. But I could always tell, Michael, every time he spoke about you, he wasn't very impartial. <laughs> um, 
so we've asked Michael to, to talk about, um, first of all, what it was like to work for someone who had your job 40 plus years ago. Uh, did he still think he, you know, you were going on the right track or did he have a lot of advice for you that you felt compelled to do something or other with? Um, to talk about what it was like to work with someone and for someone um, who was an icon in not just one or two countries, but three countries. Um, and also to talk about Ezra's involvement with the Pitt Fellows, um, not just your cohort, but all the others. And I may have something to add about that later on, but, I'm, but let's start with you. Thank you very much, Jen. Uh, to cut right to the quick, he had a lot of advice, um, but it was by and large pretty good advice. Like my fellow speakers, I am humbled and honored to be here speaking to you tonight. I valued my friendship with Ezra a great deal. He was a very important mentor and a teacher to me. Uh, and I feel I should stress that I speak tonight on behalf of the many people at Harvard and in the PIP program whose lives were touched by Ezra, rather than because my relationship with him was special. Uh, it's better to think, I think, that Ezra had special relationships with countless people. And that was one of his gifts as a human being. Uh, I'll begin with a couple of comments about Ezra's role as a faculty member at Harvard. I want to actually go back to uh, the days when Melinda and Tom were at Harvard in the early 70s. Uh, in the early 70s, Ezra set up the concentration, that's the term we use at Harvard for a major in East Asian studies. And it was designed for people like Melinda and Tom, people with an interest in the contemporary societies of East Asia. Now, ordinarily, one directs a program like this for three years, maybe five years, maybe six at the outside. Ezra ran this undergraduate program for 20 years. And throughout that time, he met with every incoming student when they chose the concentration. He made them welcome. He learned about their interest. And of course, he remembered them and was able to track them down decades later uh, and, and, and get in touch. I know this, of course, I was not at Harvard at this time. I know this because when I took over the job in 2008 uh, of directing the concentration, he strongly advised me to do the same. And of course, I followed that advice. Now, to take literally days and days of time each year to meet with undergrads and get to know them is actually unusual advice. After all, Jen, as you pointed out, the halls of Harvard are even more powerful than the halls of DC. Uh, people at Harvard are extremely busy, extremely important, or at least they think they are. Um, but, but the advice that Ezra gave, which I followed, was actually, I think, entirely consistent with his philosophy of life. Ezra found people interesting. And because his interest was genuine, he made friends everywhere. And I think this helps us understand the outpouring of affection and of grief at his, at his passing. Many of the messages of condolence that, that came in the aftermath of his death passed through the Fairbanks Center and I was able to read them before passing them on to, to Charlotte and to the family. And he was an icon in, in many more countries than just three. Um, I, won't, I won't name drop the number of people who who wrote uh, on Ezra's death. Um, Ezra played a lot of roles at Harvard uh, during the course of his 
60 years almost there. Another one, as you mentioned, was as director of the Fairbanks Center, the position, a position which, which I now hold. Um, I checked with him before I took on the role. Uh, and like Tom, this was another case where he supported me even though I was unqualified. Um, here too, I think his conduct, his performance was really consistent with his life. Uh, in his first term, he moved the center beyond the persona of its founder, John King Fairbank. But I wanna talk more about the second time that he served as director, which was uh, after he got back from Washington from 1995 to 1999. Um, his experiences in Washington, I think came back into play in the center and became part of how the center uh, began to include in its mission, the idea of engaging with the world of policy. Um, but it was also the time when collaboration and exchange with Chinese colleagues became central to our mission. And I think this is especially important to remember now. It's especially important to, 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 to uh, uh, pursue, to, to, to continue. And it's still possible. I know Ezra would say it's still possible even uh, in the context of the intense rivalry that he and Graham uh, agreed was, was inevitable. One final comment about his, his uh, time at the Fairbank Center. Um, there was a time when we were running out of space at the center and we had nowhere to put the postdocs. Uh, Ezra by this point was uh, professor emeritus, a leading intellectual consulted by leaders from DC around the world and we were facing this problem and Ezra said, well, you know, I have an office just down, my, down the street, of course, in, in his home with Charlotte on, on Sumner Street, it's a block away, I'll share my office. And ever since Ezra has shared his office at the Fairbanks Center with two postdocs, uh, and the postdocs have, have one of the nicest and largest offices in the whole building as a result. The only downside, as far as I can tell, is that they frequently get visitors from Asia who see the sign on the door and just assume they see these young scholars and they assume these are Ezra's assistants or you know Ezra's secretaries and they don't quite believe when they just say no we're, we're Ezra's office mates uh, we can't you know we can't take messages for him um, this support and I, I I mean obviously the point of my story is to suggest that he supported junior scholars in in every imaginable way and I think this support really informed his role as senior advisor, uh, as Yuan Lao, for the National Committee's uh, PIP, Public Intellectuals Program. Um, his energy, as others have mentioned, was indefatigable. I don't recall him ever saying no to anything, but I do think that among his many obligations, the, the role in the PIP program was, was something special to Ezra. Um, and not just because Jan and Steve Orleans often presented the raison d'etre of the program as being to cultivate the next generation of Ezra Vogels. Uh, although presumably, you know, he sort of had to do something to support the program when it was framed in that way. But it was also because it was so true to what was so important to Ezra. Some themes are emerging tonight and I think that's fine. He took an, Ezra, he took an interest in every member of every cohort in their research in their career development, in their personal lives. It was easy enough to do when there were one or two cohorts. I was in the second cohort 
of PIP fellows and a few dozen fellows in total. It's quite something else when there are six cohorts and over a hundred fellows. He was interested in getting to know the PIP fellows uh, because he was interested in people, but he was also interested in getting to know them because he thought he could learn from them because he recognized that what these very young, well, not all of us are so young, but when we started, we were very young. Uh, all of these young scholars, what they knew, what their different perspectives could be brought to bear to help him learn about China. He was the model of a public intellectual. I could say an awful lot, and others have actually already talked about the ways in which he was a publicly engaged intellectual, but I'd like to highlight one aspect of that. He served as a kind of alternative model for writing and publishing. Tom alluded to this as well. His scholarship was award-winning. It was influential. It was rooted in language and fieldwork. It was also totally, almost recklessly unfashionable, totally unconstrained by traditional disciplinary boundaries and conventions, totally uninterested in academic theory. And again, I, I think I, I tell this because I think that his behavior, um, and this, by the way, I think was something that Steve, Stephen Vogel mentioned in, in, uh, in a note that he wrote after the death of his father, this behavior was shaped again by, by core beliefs that what we do in the university, what we do as scholars is not just one expert talking to another expert. Scholarship can inform policy. It can make policy better. Scholarship can change what people think and what they believe. And in this sense, as I've said previously on, an, on another occasion, at least in the latter part of his life, which is the time when I know him, he was a kind of missionary. He was committed to the ideal of using teaching and writing and our privileged position at Harvard in the university and our personal interactions with people to overcome historical enmities, misunderstandings, mistrust. I've been thinking a lot lately about what I've learned from Ezra, what I, can, what I can learn from Ezra. Some things we can't realistically emulate. His capacity for work, his energy level, his memory. Uh, Melinda, the ninja of Guanxi is such a great line. But then there are some things that I think we can. Uh, his total rejection of disciplinary fashions, his commitment to public service, and above all, his genuine interest in people and friendship. Graham, I think, I, I meant to write it down, you called him, I think, a gentleman's gentleman. He gave the impression of being uh, a tubalze, a simple rustic. I'm always going to wonder to what degree this self-presentation was self-conscious and deliberate, but, but that was how he presented. He presented as a, as, a, as a rustic, but he was truly a Junza, a gentleman. Thanks for letting me share my thoughts with you. Thank you, Michael. And thanks to all four of you. We're not done with you yet. And I will hopefully remember to thank you again at the very end. But now, because I'm my memory is the white hair is indicative of my memory isn't so good. So I want to thank all four of you now for just really lovely, thoughtful, warm, genuine, 
remembrances and 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 fabulous vignettes. Um, you all have, you know, brought out some of the wonderful traits and characteristics of, of Ezra. And so I, I thank you for that. Um, we are going to turn again in a minute to the, the four of you so we can have a, a small conversation uh, among ourselves. Um, but we do have several people who have written in questions. I'd like to urge anyone else who does have a question. Uh, the way you can ask it is by going to the Q&A um, part of the Zoom and just typing in your question. But before we get to those questions and before we turn again to our panelists, um, I just want to, first of all, say how really pleased and delighted and honored we are to have among the sort of, we had about 200 plus, 250 people sign up, but when we saw the name of three members of the Vogel family, we were really pleased. Um, and so thank you to Ezra's wife, Charlotte, who was with us, um, actually four members of the Vogel family, Charlotte, his daughter, um, Eve, his grandson, Natty, and his son, Stephen. Stephen's um, tribute to his dad has been mentioned a couple times this evening. And it really is a, a warm, loving tribute. Um, and I would urge all of you to, to read it yourselves. Um, we'll post it in the chat room or put it up. I'm not too technically apt, so I'm not quite sure how this will happen, but by magic, um, my colleague Erica will give you the URL. And I would urge those of you who haven't read it because Stephen really did just a wonderful, wonderful job in um, describing the humanity and the wonderfulness of his, of his father. Um, we're also really pleased that so many of Ezra's students and colleagues and mentees uh, and friends are on this webinar as well. We're really sorry that it's not possible for us to open this up to everyone and to hear from all of you whose lives he's touched. Um, some of you, Tom has mentioned, Perry Link, Mary Bullock, um, Richard Madsen. Um, we're so pleased that all of you are here. And people actually from not just the United States are here. And for, we have people from China, from Japan, from other places in the world, from Canada, more, Michael, more of you from Canada. <laughs> and we just, um, Thank you all for joining us. Um, but I do wanna spend just a few minutes talking about um, with all of you um, to see if there's anything that any of you wanted to pick up on something that someone else said that reminded you of something you wanted to mention or something you wanted to build on, um, or if you have questions to ask of each other. I actually gave you an assignment to each of you come up with a question. I don't know if you have or not. Tom told me he did. Tom, you wanna start? Okay, I'll be the model student. Um, I wanted to ask Michael, um, I entered the MA program in uh, the Regional Studies East Asia program. Uh, and the, the program was aimed at two different types of people. One were people who were thinking of going on for a PhD in a discipline, but weren't sure what it was gonna be. And so they used usually two years to shop around. And they already, in many cases, already had a background in some aspect of Asia. The other was for professionals, uh, journalists, business people, um, 
uh, you know, consultants, a whole range of people who wanted to do a deep dive into a particular culture and do language history and that sort of thing. And uh, at Berkeley, the program is also aimed at those same two different uh, constituents. Is it is it your experience that it's the same uh, structure now at Harvard still trying to be open? Because I think this has sort of had Ezra's stamp on it too, is the idea of being trying to recruit these two types of people, not saying, oh, we don't want uh, professional people coming coming to a, a, you know, the letters and arts and sciences. So I, I, I can't actually remember if Ezra actually formally served as, as chair of the RSEA program. It's another, it's another job I've done in the past as well. Um, so I probably should know if Ezra was a predecessor, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, I, I think uh, the idea that it would be useful for people to come out of the professional, uh, out of a professional career um, and, and spend some time at Harvard uh, was something that Ezra believed in very deeply. Uh, in answer to your question, I, I, I can only say, and I think it's probably true at Berkeley as well, that there's a tension between uh, different uh, views within within the university. Um, some people think that we really should uh, uh, attract only the most promising potential specialists and train them up so they're ready to do a PhD. Um, others like Ezra, like myself, think that uh, there's there's something to be said for uh, a mix of people. Um, the the one group that I think is is particularly um, kind of relevant at this point uh, is that the program, and again, I don't know that Ezra played a role in this, but the program has historically uh, had students from the military. Uh, so these are people who are going on, I've forgotten the term for, uh, is it FAOs in the yeah. military when you, yeah. yeah. So people who are, who are preparing for an FAO career uh, and uh, to come back to some of the things that, that Graham talked about, um, it's really important uh, given what's gonna happen in the world in our lifetimes that people making decisions in government should know more about China, not less about China. So. There is this tension. Uh, I've showed you what where my colors lie, and they lie very much where Ezra's would have as well. If I could add, uh, Jan, just one small point. Uh, uh, at the one of the other events, uh, Stephen, his son, mentioned that Ezra would say uh, frequently, and it's certainly a line I had heard from him in trying to uh, play this public service public intellectual role, uh, quote, uh, maybe we should try to understand each other a little better. Yeah. Uh, I think he, he thought that uh, we might illuminate to some extent, both for thoughtful uh, leaders in China, as well as thoughtful leaders in Japan or the US or other, a little bit deeper understanding of the other country, the society, uh, its history, its uh, culture, uh, the way it may be seeing the world on the proposition that uh, we're gonna have to find some way to live together. I think uh, back to the uh, sort of relentlessly optimistic, I think Ezra, uh, I would tease him occasionally, uh, I told him about him. I thought he thought too many people were too much like him. Uh, and if 
the world consisted mostly of people like him, there wouldn't have been as many wars as we've seen <laughs> in history. So uh, he, 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 uh, he was generous, as I say, uh, to a fault, but his commit, his passion for trying to help people understand things, which if they understood would lead them to better behavior. You could see that, you know, as him as a teacher or mentor, but you could also see that as he tried to talk to people uh, in positions of power. Absolutely, Graham. And, and I think that as you were saying that, it reminded me of the fact that um, when Ezra finished his book on Dung, he already had his new project planned out. He was going to write a book on Hu Yaobang. And he really wanted to do that project. It was very important to him because he had, I think, a lot of respect for Hu Yaobang, just as he had had for Dung. And, and Hu Yaobang may have been a little bit less complex a character in some ways. And so he thought maybe it would have been slightly easier, but he didn't, and he had planned, and he had already started working on that when the conflict between China and Japan began to escalate. And it made him believe or, or think and realize that he really should put aside his work on Hu Yaobang because what was more important at that particular time in history was to help the Chinese and Japanese, two cultures which he was passionate about and which he knew so well, that it was important to help them understand one another. You know, for a long time, he'd been trying to help Americans understand Chinese and Japanese understand America and vice versa. But this to him for several years was a real calling that he needed to help the Japanese and the Chinese understand their own history with each other, understand the periods when they had helped one another and learned from one another and trying to shake them up and get them to realize that they don't have to be at odds with one another. And, and that was, and he did that. And at the age of 89, published this really huge <laughs> book hey. that, you know, people would have taken usually 50 years to write. And he did it granted with some help, but his was the driving force behind it. And that, um, and, and then very sadly, once that was finished, he rushed right back to Hu Yaobang, but, but very sadly, we won't see that book. But he definitely did have this great desire to not only understand himself, and as Michael said, to want to learn something new out of every experience, but he wanted to help others learn as well. Could I, I, I'm being, I'm being gently prodded on the chat to ask a question, which I know some of you were also thinking about talking about. So I'll just throw it out there, being a journalist. Um, I wonder what the other panelists felt about Ezra's agreeing to publish the Deng Xiaoping book in Chinese language with requested edits uh, from the Chinese publisher. Um, what are, what are people's views on that? Um, anybody want to take that up? If not, I will. I'd rather hear from others first. You, you actually struggled with them on it. I also talked to him about it, but why don't you go first, Jeff? Well, I, I was just going to say that Ezra asked me and, and, and Steve Orleans uh, when the book was 
done and published. And um, I have to say that Steve and I both said to him, no, you shouldn't agree to the cuts. You shouldn't do that. You wrote it. You should, you know, publish it that way. And if the Chinese aren't happy with it, you shouldn't not dummy down the book, but you, you, sh you shouldn't do what you're being asked to do. But Ezra, even though he asked our advice, he didn't take it. And I'm really glad he didn't. Um, he went on and asked others who were maybe a bit wiser about this than Steve and I were. Um, and others, I think it was primarily his Chinese friends. It was Chinese intellectuals who he respected a great deal, who said to him, yes, you must publish it. It might go against the grain and you know, freedom, academic freedom, et cetera. But it's really important to get something written about Deng for people in China who don't know these aspects of him. You won't get everything through, but you will get a lot through. And it's important for us to have something. If you don't publish it in Chinese with the whatever revisions are asked to be made, then we won't even have that. So please do it. And he listened to that advice and they were right. Very consistent with, uh, with uh, my uh, limited window under this, but uh, I think that uh, he understood that they were not gonna have a full uh, version of Tiananmen. Uh, and that was part of the price for having the picture of the rest of, of Deng Xiaoping. And he also, as you said, had a, a respect and admiration for much of what Deng had, uh, had accomplished. And I think actually his book helps those who were, whose images of Deng were set by Tiananmen uh, to put him into a, into a larger perspective. Uh, when I uh, finished my book, uh, the question was, uh, what about the Chinese edition? Because the Chinese had had a translation of it before it was actually printed here. So God help us, uh, the way their government works. But uh, the publisher uh, wanted to make some changes and Ezra said, tell them no. And ultimately uh, I had to compromise by taking out uh, what I thought was a very good profile of Xi Jinping in one of the chapters, but the rest of the book is identical. It just is missing this account because they were sensitive about that. And it's Ezra had said, well, if you keep pushing long enough, maybe you can even persuade them. Uh, but I was eager to get it out sooner rather than later. So uh, we have uh, Charlotte Eichels, Ezra's wife, who would like to weigh in on this. And I'm told through the magic of technology, we can do that. Charlotte, we're delighted to have you join us with some comment on this. Um, I'm just gonna say, this may be hard to believe, but I traveled in a totally different circle in Beijing from Ezra. And I was working on bioethics, a totally different topic. I have a different name. My circle of people that I interviewed did not realize I was connected to him. And so I've forgotten exactly when it was, but after the Chinese edition of Deng Xiaoping came out, uh, I went with him on a visit to Beijing for, for some reason or other. And I went around and started visiting my own network. And so they said, well, what brings you to Beijing this time? And I honestly couldn't say I'm doing research. So I said, um, I'm actually uh, accompanying my husband uh, 
And they said, well, what's he doing? And I said, well, um, it's Fukai. And they practically fell over because, I mean, me connected to Fukai? How could this be? But one person got so excited. She said, I can't believe that. You have to tell me. I have to, you have to tell him for me. I am so grateful for that book because for the first time, I understood what happened at Tiananmen. So stuff may have been taken out, folks, but lots more was in there that could have been available before. So I just want to say he was very, very careful on what he allowed them to do. Very careful. And there were things that he refused to change. So I would just like to say he was not a pushover. Okay. Well, no, I don't think any of us ever would have characterized Ezra as a pushover. That's for sure. Dan, I wanted to ask, can I ask Charlotte a question? I mean, um, yes, but then we've got a couple of questions on the outside that we want to try to get to, but real quick, Tom. Okay, just what was his reaction to criticism from colleagues in particular who said you sold out? Um, I mean, was he hurt by that or he or just felt they're not no, understanding what I did. There are differences of opinion on how to deal with this. That he was very philosophical. He wasn't resentful. Let me just add one small point. To, what did he do with the uh, with the royalties from the sale of the book, uh, since it hasn't been mentioned? And again, all of the all of the royalties typically the Chinese book yeah. went directly to Ohio Wesleyan. Absolutely. He did not get a penny from the Chinese edition of the book except for the Hong Kong version, which was uncut. But isn't that the classic Ezra? And the answer is, you bet. Um, just another comment on the book comes from Andy Murtha, an, another PIP2 fellow who wants to respond to Melinda's question that Ed Steinfeld noticed that at the various bookstores that he would go to in China, he would go and open, uh, look at, the books that uh, Ezra's book on Dung and noticed that the binding of all the copies in the bookstore were worn right around the, the uh, chapter four or the chapter which was on June 4th. So um, not only people who were able to afford to buy the book, but who just went in and did some little casual reading, that was the chapter that they were turning to. Um, Anybody else have a question? Otherwise, I'm going to turn to um, a question from a colleague, and I guess a former roommate, actually, of Tom Gold, Glenn Fukushima, uh, who's with the Center for American Progress. And he actually sent in a message, but he all, uh, earlier, like yesterday or the day before, but he's also just um, written in another one that, that I'm going to ask. It's um, somewhat deeper question, which whoever wants to answer this um, can take a crack at it. Um, Glenn asks, is it possible for any American, so I'm sorry, he's not only a, a former roommate of Tom's, but he was a, a student of Ezra's a teaching fellow and a mentee and, and a friend of Ezra's for 46 years. Um, and the, I thought it was a roommate, but it's an office that they shared at Harvard. Um, so Glenn asks, is it possible for any Americans to follow in Ezra's steps and master the Japanese and Chinese language, understand both China and Japan, and ask big and important questions? 
Or has American academia become so narrow, specialized, and focused on theory and methodology that it's impossible to replicate what Ezra has achieved? Is there any hope to produce a future Ezra? Michael, you should. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, so I'll, I'll, I'll start by taking a stab. And, and what I want to do, first of all, is commend to you all an essay by, I believe, Ezra's last PhD student in sociology, uh, Professor Hu Xiaojiang, who wrote uh, a wonderful essay entitled, I'll share it in the chat as soon as I'm done speaking uh, and as soon as I can find it. Um, it's called something like, can, uh, can China produce an Ezra Vogel? And she takes the question from, from two perspectives. First of all, uh, is it possible within the Chinese intellectual context for uh, someone like Ezra to emerge? And basically is, is making the argument that that's the direction that, that the Chinese academy needs to move is to make it capable of producing scholars like Ezra. Um, but then she also asks intriguingly, what can China do to produce more Ezra Vogels in America? In the, in the sense that um, people like Ezra are very, very, they are, they are true friends of China in the sense that they don't necessarily agree with every, there, there, there's a certain kind of friend of China that no one would aspire to be. And then, well, except some of those people who, who are that role, but, but, but then there's the, the Zhengyo, the critical friend of China. Uh, and whose point is that China should try to produce more people like that. Um, as a practical matter in answer to uh, Glenn Fushima's question, um, I don't know that Ezra, I don't think Ezra would get tenure at Harvard um, in 2020. Um, I think uh, the walls are higher than they were. Uh, I think that the, um, uh, the, certainly the disciplinary crossing would be very, very difficult. Um, the, the, I, the department I'm in is called East Asian Languages and Civilizations. And it's committed to the idea that a holistic understanding of East Asian societies is valuable. Um, oh, sorry, I have to say one thing to Glenn's question because all of my students have to learn Chinese and Japanese. So on the language, it's just one of the requirements of the program. So on the issue of language alone, yes, um, <laughs> it, it, that is possible, not easy, for Americans to follow in Ezra's steps uh, and, and I think understand both societies. Um, it would be very, very difficult, sadly, I think, for someone to follow the path that Ezra followed. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't easy when he followed it in the 70s um, and it was Ezra's special characteristics that made it possible. I think it'd be very, very challenging and difficult now and, and that's a pity. It's a pity that there isn't more room for more people like Ezra. There is, and I think that's one of the reasons that Ezra loved the PIP program so much, not only because it was filled with younger people who had these new ideas and new ways of looking at things, but also since one of the premises behind it is that you need to be someone who does not just look at China through your own narrow prism of your own discipline, but can look at anthropology and geography and all sorts of other areas to enrich your own understanding and have a more holistic understanding of China. Um, so that's not surprising to me at all. Um, I'd like to ask a question from a longtime friend of Ezra's, Joan Kaufman, who is now with the uh, Schwarzman Scholars. And she wants to know if Ezra were with us, 
what piece of sage advice would he offer to President Biden's China team on how to balance the perceived China threat with a return to more engagement? That sounds like a Graham question to me. It does. And I don't know, Graham, uh, in terms of the work that you and Ezra were doing together to put something in place for the new administration, is there any nugget of wisdom that you can share with us about that? Uh, so F. Scott Fitzgerald in Great Gatsby's line has this uh, interesting proposition that the uh, mark of a first-class mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in one's head at the same time and still function. So I think that's an interesting insight. And I think, uh, I certainly believe, and I think Ezra had come to believe that the U.S. is going to have to find a way to see China as a, a rival, a serious structural rival on the one hand, but without, uh, but understanding it, not demonizing it and not uh, caricaturing it, uh, just a fierce rival, sort of like the U.S. was when we rose at a similar period in our history at the beginning of the 20th century, when Teddy Roosevelt was leading us into what we were sure was gonna be an American century. So that's on the one hand, but simultaneously and seemingly contradictorily, uh, a, uh, an inescapable partner, which if we don't find ways to cooperate together, we can either blow ourselves up or make a climate that we can't survive in. So both of those require rather intense co cooperation. And I think actually that's the challenge for the Biden administration. I think fortunately, if you look at both what Biden has said and certainly what his national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, who's been very much part of this same conversation and part of our, when he participated in our working group several times, he, he calls it uh, competitive coexistence, but you know they're looking for some term. The difficulty, I mean, first, it, it's a that requires a balancing act of rather states, statecraft of a high order, which is not uh, uh, what the American government is uh, famous for. And secondly, in a democracy in which trying to explain complicated things is. Uh, uh, obviously quite difficult. So uh, uh, that's not a good answer to the question, but that's about as far as we got. Well, I, I think it's a, a, good, a good place to end because unfortunately we have come to the end of our hour and a half. It just sort of sped right by. Uh, I want to again thank the four of you for joining us. Um, I hope very much that Ezra is listening. I think he would have <laughs> loved hearing what everyone had to say. I know I have, and I'm sure people who are listening in have as well. Um, before closing, I, I just do wanna add how extremely fortunate the National Committee on US-China Relations has been to have had Ezra's continuing and strong commitment to the committee and to the work that we do. He was one of the earliest members of the committee and he then went on to be, and I have actually some wonderful pictures of him um, that echo it with his hair 
<laughs> going at all different angles. I think Tom or someone has a t-shirt um, that shows uh, Ezra in at one point in his life with his, most of us who've known him lately had, know him with no hair, but he used to have this wild mane that stuck out at all different angles and was once caricatured on a t-shirt that, that Tom owns. But anyway, he was, um, uh, he was a board member of the committee uh, after his early days with us as a member and then also one of our vice chair for many years. And as you heard most recently, he was just totally devoted and committed as a member of the advisory committee of our public intellectuals program. So we, we hope that all of you have learned something new and interesting tonight, because as we've said, that's what Ezra was always looking to do, to learn something new and interesting. And one of the highest honors I think he could bestow on anyone was after a conversation to say to them, you know, I thank you so much. I learned something from this because that to him was really important. Um, I want to wish everyone with us tonight a, a happy year of the ox, uh, a happy, for those China specialists among us, a happy Neo year. Um, get it? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so 2021 is the year of the ox and oxen are known for their determination and for their proclivity for hard work. And certainly those are two attributes that are very characteristic of Ezra. His determination and his always wanting to work hard, mostly to learn new things. Um, and I think a lot has been said tonight about Ezra's intellect, about his mastery of two foreign languages, the ability to both read and write and give long lectures and long television interviews uh, in any one of three languages and very more articulately than most people. Um, but for me, and I think what's come out for the others on this event tonight, it was uh, his humor, his humanity, and his warm caring about and nurturing of others that remain, I think for all of us, the essence of who Ezra was and always will be to all of us. So thank you all so much for joining us and have a happy Chinese New Year's. It'll be a little sadder for those of us that Ezra's not here to celebrate it, but we'll be thinking of him. Thank you everyone. Thank you all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.